And uh, this morning's theme, as it was already mentioned, is on redemption. And so we've decided that to, um, coming out of Hebrews, which I'll speak more to in a moment, but we wanted to just, honestly, I wanted to bridge the gap. And I realized as I began just thinking and meditating upon where we've been, having just closed the book of Hebrews, that there was a very clear kind of bridge between where we were and to where I wanted to go. And as you guys know, traditionally, within the Christian calendar, what I love about Advent is, did you know that in terms of Western Christianity, the season of Advent actually marks the beginning of the liturgical calendar? So, you know, for those of us who grew up in uh, charismatic, maybe even Pentecostal-leaning churches, um, the, the liturgical calendar wasn't something you probably even heard of. In fact, Liturgy, I didn't even learn about until I was a grown adult, to be honest with you. Um, But what I love about Advent is that it begins the liturgical calendar. And just this idea, not just, of course, of the inception, and we're going to talk about more in terms of what Advent really marks and means, but the fact that it begins in this moment. So in our hearts, we can almost see this as the launching point, not not the conclusion of 2020, as many people are hoping and looking towards but actually the launching point of what God wants to do within this next year and in this next season. So if you're a part of this faith community, you should have received um, an email correspondence this week from me um, to just kind of setting up as a a bit of a precursor to the morning today, outlining the posture that we want to take as a faith community over this Advent season. And very quickly, I wanted to just reiterate to you what was said in case you had missed it, or for those of you who didn't give it, just giving a brief context as we set out on our journey of remembrance, but also of looking forward. So as I said, having just completed our study through the book of Hebrews last week, just listen, this isn't for me, okay? You don't, so I want you to be honest. Did you, did you find Hebrews to be enriching and establishing in your own heart? Raise your hand if you did. Good. And again, you don't have to do it for my sake. I'm with you. I'm, I'm learning as we go here, okay? Um, but I hope so. I mean, my desire was so, I mean, Hebrews is such a beautiful and meaty book. So to tackle it in such a way to give ourselves an extended period of time um, to really delve into all, as much at least, of what it says within the broad context of the letter, I just felt like was going to be such a wonderful establishing thing for this church. And so my desire and prayer was for that, a deepening of our faith. So having just completed that last week, taking a step back, I think, if we can, in our minds of everything that we had heard and read throughout that letter, we can actually see that Hebrews is incredibly advental in its nature and in its perspective and narration, if you will. The word advent comes from the Latin word, which is adventus, which means brilliantly coming or arrival. It's not the super profound word, but that's where we get the word advent. It just means a coming or an arrival, and of course we know that Advent is not just about the birth of Christ. And as I was a child growing up, all I really heard was the birth, and not even the word Advent, but it was just Christmas was so much about the birth of Christ, which of course is what we celebrate, but, in, but the reason that Advent is so beautiful and is so robust is because it helps to put the believer on the current timeline or chronological order of redemptive history, and it helps us to realize that we live in this suspended time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. Or if you're facing me, it's the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, right? So we live 
now in this space between the two. And much of Hebrews is written to show that what Christ initiated through his first advent was a fulfillment of all that the old covenant, which had been given to Moses and had been given to the people of Israel, everything that the old covenant foreshadowed and prefigured through all of its rituals and its feasts and ceremonies. And of course, we know the law, the the advent, the first advent of Christ Jesus came as a fulfillment to all of those foreshadows and those acts and ceremonies. However, what I want to say to us today is that is in spite of this fulfillment, or in addition, I should say, to this fulfillment, there is still yet another fulfillment that we as God's faithful still eagerly look towards. Just as the people in the old covenant looked at the acts and the rituals and the ceremonies, understanding that it spoke of something greater and something truer, even though that greater and truer being, that being Christ Jesus came, He simply began something that has still yet to be completed. And so we today, in the same spirit, if you will, of anticipation that the old covenant believers had, we can share that same anticipation and should I say longing for the culmination of Christ's redemptive narrative. So this fulfillment coming at the end of this present age is the realization of the eternal age that is yet to come. That which is spoken of in Revelation 21, when the final declaration is made and the voice from the throne says, behold, and I love, I love, I love this verse. Behold, the voice says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And we think back again through Hebrews and the promise that God made to Abraham was that I will be your God and you will be my people. But now we see that that promise takes on a whole new expression. Because in addition to eternally being the covenant people of God, now the consummation of this covenant is Christ with us, eternally. Not just in being, in terms of spirit being, but in tangible presence that somehow, and I don't, even understand, nor can I fully imagine it, but somehow we who are the redeemed of God will dwell and we see that the redemption narrative comes full circle almost back to Eden again, where we have the picture of God walking with Adam and Eve through the garden. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so it's interesting that these First Advent and the Second Advent seem to bookmark, if you will, this present age, which is the church age or the age of grace that we find ourselves in today. And through this view of future fulfillment, which we look and anticipate and long for, we can see that like the old covenant's foreshadowing of Christ, through the rituals and through the ceremonies, which we studied and discussed at length over the last eight, nine months or six months or whatever it was, that that like the old covenant foreshadowing, the anticipation becomes heightened in our own longing and in our own looking forward through the acts and through the ordinances that we have been given to participate in as his new covenant people. So what I'm saying is, is that just like the ceremonies had such great significance in terms of the cleansing and the washing of sin and the remembrance of that and repentance for those who were in the old covenant. So now we in the new covenant, 
What do we do when we come to the Lord's table? It is an act not only of remembrance, but it points forward and thus creates within us a desire and a longing for what will one day be. So these ordinances have been given to us to participate in as God's new covenant people. And in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10, the writer, he uses this language, and this is what I spoke of. All of this is just context for the email that I sent and for launching into our Advent season. And I, and I had identified this in my correspondence that in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, the writer of Hebrews uses language of copies and shadows. You guys remember that? Copies and shadows. And he uses them as it pertains to the Old Covenant indicators of something truer that would be found in Christ. And these copies and these shadows, he says, they point God's people, listen, the copies and the shadows point God's people to the heavenly things, writer Hebrews says. Or he also says, to the good things to come, which would one day found, be found in the person of Christ Jesus. These rituals, these ordinances were intended to create longing, brothers and sisters, in the heart of God's people for their truer, better reality. And so it is with us today. Are you following me? So it is with us today that these copies, the Lord's table, the shadows, the gathering of the saints, the worshiping of the saints, the proclamation of the gospel as shadows speak of and point to the good things to come and thus create in us a stirring and a longing and anticipation and a desire and an eagerness for the eternal age which God will consummate at his second advent. As his church, we have been given these things to stir within us a deep yearning for their ultimate reality. And participation in these should be a continual reminder to us that we are not at home in this world. When we come to the Lord's table, it is a reminder of what is true of our nature now in Christ Jesus and what will ultimately be our final home. So they remind us that we are not at home within this world, that what we long for can never be found ultimately here in the temporal, but it is only in the eternal. And that God's grace is present for us now in this lifetime. So this Advent season, we're gonna give ourselves to the consideration, to the participation in, and to the celebration of four present acts which foreshadow for us a greater reality that awaits for us at Christ's return. And as I've said already, they are redemption or they are the Lord's table which points us to redemption as we have already sung this morning. It's the gathering of the saints we will celebrate which points us to adoption. It's the act of being heralds of the gospel which points us to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it is the worship of the saints, the declarations of praise of the saints, which points us to the exaltation of Christ Jesus. Those are the four themes that we will celebrate this Advent season. And so each week as we engage in these acts, we will do so also through a lens of their future reality as well so that we remind ourselves that there is yet something more 
that awaits us in an age that is rapidly approaching. So with that, I want to speak to you this morning on the time that we have, which will be about another half an hour, on redemption as our first celebration. Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And I just want to give you a fair warning. I am geeking out on Revelation 5. I love Revelation 5. I love to sing about Revelation 5, as you very well know. And so if you are a part of this faith community or considering being a part of it, be forewarned. Revelation 5 is my jam right now. So Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read for you. Revelation 5.1, brothers and sisters, receive the word of the Lord this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Such an absolutely beautiful glimpse, if you will, here that John has in Revelation 5 into the power of Christ Jesus' redemption. And I know that we often look at the book of Revelation as things that have yet to come. And I just would encourage you again, if you are interested in the book of Revelation, we did a a very long study through it. Um, Very, very long study through the book of Revelation. But I would encourage you just to go back and to let yourself be strengthened in what is called eschatology or the study of the last day things. And may I just say this as a side note, it's because... The things that we believe will happen affect how we live today. And so if you say to yourself, I don't know, or I'm not sure, we have to come to some type of conclusion because it affects us now, what you believe will happen. So we studied Revelation, and I'm not going to study it in the context through that lens. I just want to look at it in terms of redemption and what it speaks to us here, because I think that it shows us this powerful picture of Christ's redemption. And the first thing that I want to point out is shown to us in verse 5 and in verse 6. And it is this comparison between Christ the Lamb and Christ the Lion. In verse 5, it is, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. And in verse 6, it is the Lamb that was slain. And I have a quote. I want to put it up for you. It's... 
by Augustine, some say Augustine, some say Augustine, I say Augustine, that's how I like to pronounce him. I've got this quote by Augustine, and he explains the significance of this duality. Why a lamb in his passion, he asks, because he underwent death without being guilty of any iniquity. Why a, a lion in his passion? Because in being slain, he, was, he slew death. Why a lamb in his resurrection? Because his innocence is everlasting. And why a lion in his resurrection? Because everlasting is also his might. What a beautiful insight. And I, was there some typos in there? Oh, doggone it. That's my fault. But what a beautiful picture that is as to the purpose of John's vision or God's revelation to John's glimpse into the throne room of both the lion and the lamb, both necessary and both this picture of the breadth of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And in the song of the creatures and the elders that follows in verse 9, we see the key to the power of this redemption, and that is this. It is by the blood that he ransomed people for God. By his blood, he ransomed people for God. Redemption through the cross of Christ Jesus, it was a liberation that was made possible by the payment of a ransom. His redemption on the cross was a liberation that was made possible by the payment of a ransom. Like a kidnapper who demands payment in exchange for one life or for the life of another person. Satan held captive all of humanity, demanding a ransom that none of us could give save for the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And as we know, of course, Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So it was made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ, redemption on the cross. But in addition to liberation, in addition to the payment of a ransom, it was also an act of deliverance through the cross. Namely, that deliverance from sin and deliverance from the eternal effect from sin and the slavery and the power of sin today in this life, which is the separation eternally from the, Christ, from the presence of Christ Jesus and the eternal torment that one would receive because of their rejection of Christ and his free gift of grace. It was deliverance from that that Jesus Christ brought through his cross in redemption. And Paul would say this in Ephesians 1.7, in him, speaking of Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And I love this picture of just abounding and unending grace being poured out continually upon the life of a believer, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mercy of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ Jesus. Christ's redemption brought reconciliation, mediating a sinful people with a just and holy God. Praise the name of the Lord our God. So through redemption, there was a liberation. There was also deliverance. And thirdly, in redemption on the cross, there was a releasing. Redemption through the cross of Christ 
released mankind from the power of sin's damnation and simultaneously propelled those who would believe in him into a life of freedom and blessing and grace. Please hear me what I'm saying. It isn't just the justifying nature of the cross, but what is accompanied with Christ's redemption is a propulsion now into a life of grace. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans chapter three, in which he would go on to say in chapter six, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart and having been set free from sin have now become slaves of righteousness. So it was a releasing from one enslavement, if you will, into another. Which is why Paul so often referred to himself in the Greek term of doulos, the bondservant of Christ Jesus. So through redemption, we not only were delivered from sin and from its eternal effects, and not only were we ransomed and liberated by the blood payment of Christ Jesus, but we were also, brothers and sisters, released into a new life in him. How awesome is that? I pray that we would comprehend the depth and the richness of that truth. And so take hold of it for ourselves to live it out each and every day, that we have been propelled into newness of life. Colossians 1 13 speaks to this deliverance and transference, this from one to the other, when Paul says, he has delivered us, you remember this well, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and what, you remember, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Transference, from one into the other. Redemption took us from the old and brought us into the new. It's the, it's the entrance into now the age of grace and into newness of life. And it's here in this place of deliverance and transference that I wanna spend just the remainder of the time that we have this morning because it's here that we find ourselves today in 2020, Western Christianity. And it's not only that, but it's here that we find the great significance in remembering the now but not yet nature of the Christian life. Have you heard that phrase before? The now and, and, and not yet. A life which is so clearly presented within the Lord's table, this now and not yet reality. And one which will only be fully experienced when he returns once again. Look with me, please, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Are you guys following me okay? Is everybody awake? Anybody in Turkey coma still? We're only a couple days away. If the tryptophan is sinking in, just give a little sprint around the back. I won't take any offense. I'll be more hurt if you fall asleep. John chapter 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19. We're talking about the transference, deliverance and transference. Beginning in verse 31. 
since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place, that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Here in this portion of scripture, we have a recording of Jesus' crucifixion that is unique only to John's gospel. And one which I believe just in, in light of this redemption, and we're talking about redemption this morning, it's beautifully insightful as to the breadth of redemption that was given that day. Here the side of Christ is pierced, which as Isaiah would prophesy, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him that day. The side of Christ is pierced, and from his side flows out blood, which of course, as I've already have said and spoken, was necessary for the atonement and the ransoming nature of Christ's redemptive work. The blood to be spilled was absolutely necessary. The life of Jesus Christ was present within the blood. It was poured out through, listen, brothers and sisters, it was poured out through a violent death. The death of Jesus Christ was brutal, and it was violent, but it was necessary. It was necessary as such for God's cause in order that we would be free. But the end goal of Christ's work was not simply freedom for the life of the believers, I've already said. And then John tells us this really interesting thing that with blood also came water in the piercing of his side. And I have to be honest, I've read that many times and not fully given myself to understanding the significance of it until I thought about it today in light of the redemption of Christ Jesus. What is the significance of water? From the side of Christ came not only redemption, but it came newness of life. The blood was a picture of redemption. The water was a picture of life. Think about the examples that we have within Scripture and what they picture for us. They speak of new life. The obvious is the ordinance of baptism, right? Going under is a picture of our union with Christ in his death, and when we come out, it's a picture of our, our, our union with Christ in his resurrection and the washing and the beginning and regeneration and life beginning again for the first time. That doesn't make any sense. You can't begin again for the first time, can you? Actually, you can. We're going to stick with it. The Red Sea. When God parted the Red Sea for Israel to cross in it, it was a picture of the very same thing. That which would be true in the New Covenant. Israel comes out of enslavement. Egypt is a picture of bondage and slavery 
to sin and to certain death for God's people. And as they come out of Egypt, they immediately are faced with the Red Sea and God makes a way through. And here's this picture of God's people coming through the cleansing work of Jesus Christ into new life on the other side. In the flood, what do we see with Noah? God begins again life. In the Jordan, twice we see this picture. Joshua first and then Israel. Sorry, Joshua in Israel and then Jesus the second time. The first, their crossing signified entrance into the promised land or the people of God finally entering into the rest that they had been promised. And with Jesus, of course, we know that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River, signifying the beginning of his messianic ministry. Coming out of it, he receives both the confirmation and affirmation of the Father. This is my son, he says. Listen to him. And also receives the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the water is meant to speak of the life that we now have. And I can't emphasize this enough. Redemption bought for us not just deliverance from sin, but entrance into new creation life and into grace and into blessing and into adoption and into all of the great benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus. I was thinking of this. This is so like God, not just to redeem, but to redeem and. And I thought of the story of Boaz and Ruth. And you guys remember of the story of Boaz and Ruth. And Boaz not only redeems Ruth as he was supposed to redeem her, as the law required him, but he redeemed her plus. What a beautiful picture. And of course, we know in a book where God's name, the name of Yahweh, isn't even written once or mentioned once, yet we have this picture of redemption so beautifully given to us that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And in our redemption, he gave us that plus new life. To which Paul would say in Romans 5.17, for it is because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Now much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So death came through Adam, we know, but life came through Jesus. And not just life comparable to what was begun in Adam, but life so much more greater. You see, Christ's redemption provided so much more than just forgiveness of our trespass. But it ushered in with it an entirely new way of living, one that would be marked by grace, Grace, the, the ability to put off the old fleshly self and to put on Christ, as Paul speaks of in Colossians. Grace for a life that's empowered to live and to move by the Spirit of God. And a life that will most certainly complete the race that it had been called to. This is the life that we have received. A life of grace, a life of assurance, a life of empowerment. So much better than the life before. Don't you agree? This is what we sit, we all sit here today in this reality. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is your reality. What will it take for us to take a hold of it? What will it take for us to live this way? To live this truth each and every day, each and every moment? 
What will it take in my life, oh God? Where do I need to grow and mature in my understanding to live in such a way? And as to redemption's future view, I don't even know what to say. It's got to be the greatest thing we've ever experienced. To be free from the effects of sin on our life, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, just stop and think right now in your own heart and mind. The areas in your life that you struggle with, big or small, doesn't even matter. Just think for a moment. That's not even going to be an issue. They won't even exist. That's redemption, the ultimate expression of it. And of course we know what's even greater than that is the voice from the throne that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. To dwell with God. To dwell with him on the new heavens, or on the new earth and the new heavens. I'm telling you, it's going to be way better than we even know. For sure. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> to the bank. So with that, I want to take, we've got about 15 minutes left, and I, this is what I want to do this morning. I want to call us to participate in the Lord's table. But as we do, I want to peer into it much more intently that from it we might obtain its most fullest benefits. And I think that we have worked diligently as elders for years to build in a healthy view of the Lord's table. But as I started thinking about it, because it's kind of central to this morning, it's going to be the central act of our togetherness in this picture of redemption. I wanted to see if we could dig in even deeper to it today. And so I want to just take you through a little bit of a journey this morning, if I may. And I want to begin with um, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Are you familiar? Anyone here familiar with the Westminster Catechism? Okay, few of us are. The Westminster Catechism is it's essentially, it's just this brilliant unfolding of, of doctrine and belief and theology that we would all agree with. And um, as it pertains to the Lord's table, it gives to us this beautiful picture, which I think is very helpful this morning, that I want to just begin by reading it. And I believe that I have it up here for the keynote. This is what the Westminster Catechism says in, in regards to the Lord's table. Just listen, if, if you read and hear better, then do that. But if, if you get distracted, just close your eyes and listen to what I'm saying. And I'll try to read it with some, some gravitas. It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Heedfully discern the Lord's body and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings and thereby stir themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces. In judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace in renewing their covenant with God and love to all the saints. 
what a beautiful, beautiful, just encouragement as we come to the Lord's table. And in it, see, we're presented with a number, I think, of both postures, but also engagements that we're called to, that we ought to try to discipline ourselves to participate in each time we come to the Lord's table. Now, I thought about this, and I went, wow, there was so much in that. Put that back up again, would you, Ben? There's so much in that. that I was picturing myself just coming to the Lord's table going, okay, I'm going to meditate on my sorrows. I'm going to visit. But you know what? I thought about it for a minute. I was like, you know what? Maybe through some practice and training and forming of some habit, we might find that these just are assimilated into how we approach the Lord's table. So I wanted to extract from all of these things just a few. And I want to lead us through each one of them this morning. Firstly, we are instructed to wait on God. We're instructed to wait on God. It's not simply the act of consumption itself that activates the grace in the life of the believer. Hear what I'm saying. It isn't just the drinking of the wine and the eating of the bread that activates the grace that we believe is present within the Lord's table. It's the engagement of our faith in the act along with the working of the Spirit of God within us that quickens its blessing to our life. So as we come to the Lord's table, the first call to wait on God is a call to pause for a moment. It's a call to activate our own faith just in simple remembrance both of what he has done and again in the spirit of Advent of looking forward. So let's do that at this time. I want to do this. If we can come forward, I want to invite you to come forward now. We're going to take an element each and go back to our seats. And as you guys do that, I'm just going to read again what the catechism says. So come forward at this time, take an element, and let's go back to our seat. And as you do so, let me just read again. It requires of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir themselves up to a vigorous exercise of those graces. In judging themselves and in sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing their covenant with God and love to all the saints. As you return to your seat, I want to just call you to wait on God in this moment. Be still in your heart and in your mind. Don't rush towards what you anticipate, the consumption. Don't rush towards that yet. But just remain in each of these pauses intently. Wait on God.
Secondly, we're instructed to observe the elements and actions. The act of consumption has a purpose. If it didn't, Jesus could have easily just instructed us to picture something within our minds rather than to actually engage with it. In the past, there have been times where we have taken communion by actually breaking a piece of bread from, from the loaf to consume it. And of course, we know that at this moment, we're not doing that now, but I think we can still bring to mind what that picture conjures. So in, to observe the elements and the actions is to draw to remembrance his brokenness and his suffering. I read it said that, that the, the wine can conjure this sense of the bitterness of the suffering of Christ. And so often we drink wine for pleasure. I don't know what the wine was like that they drank around the table that night when the Lord instituted his table. But perhaps there was a tinge of bitterness to it that in it, again, brings this picture of the suffering, the bitterness of the suffering of Christ Jesus. So in the elements are presented not just the blood in the body, although it's there, but the brokenness and the suffering that came for me. Like, who am I to deserve these things? But yet here I stand to you today. So we observe these things. We picture the brutal beating of his body, the brokenness of him, the pouring out of his blood. Next we're called to a posture or a pause of repentance. And the catechism says, sorrow, sorrow for our sin. Before we can consume this, brothers and sisters, we have to have a posture of repentance. It's the contrite heart that comes to the Lord Jesus Christ that receives the kindness of God in its repentance. It's the humble heart that recognizes the undeserving nature of what we hold in our hands. Jonathan Edwards says this, we contribute nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We contributed nothing but the sin that made it necessary. Let's take a moment, just if you haven't already, and let's just take a posture of repentance and pause for that which we have sinned against God in. Next, we're called to feed on him by faith, it says. We're gonna move now towards the actual receiving of the elements, and as we consume them, listen, as we consume them, and here's the significance of consumption, we are taking for ourselves. We are appropriating for ourselves. We are consuming for ourselves the many benefits 
of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not just picturing something, brothers and sisters. We're called to this symbolic gesture through our consumption of appropriation and application of what is present in these. So it was said that it was on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed that around the table with his disciples at the institution, he took the bread and as he broke it, saying this is a picture, this is a picture of what will be and he instructs them to always take it in remembrance of him. And so what I want to say today is we take the bread and we prepare to receive it today. Let's not only remember on the brokenness, but let's also remember what it secures, both presently and also within the future. And as we do now, we move from a posture of humility and penitence and we begin to move into the consumption of the grace and the activation of grace by the faith of God, by our faith in God and moving in now towards a posture of thankfulness and rejoicing for what he has done. So let's take the bread together at this moment. And as we have already said, the cup is a picture of the blood, but I also want to remind us of John 19, of both the blood and the water that was poured out. And I know that wasn't spoken of at the, at the Lord's table, but in terms of just our perspective this morning, let us both remember the redemption that was provided for us through the cup, through the blood of Christ, and also the life that was present in his sacrifice. Let's take the cup today. And so having waited on God, having considered the significance of the elements, having considered our sin, having consumed them, having received the grace that is present, we're called and instructed to renew our covenant with God. What a beautiful, beautiful moment this is. Just as Moses reminded the people of Israel with the blood of, of the blood within the new covenant as he sprinkled it, sprinkled it upon them, he reminded the people of God that it was the blood that was the oath of that covenant with them. So too, let's take a moment to renew our resolve and to renew our desire to follow and to walk with Christ obediently and to be found in him only. Let's take a moment now and let's renew our covenant with God. Strike in your own heart and mind the faith and the resolve to follow him only, to desire him only, and to walk with him obediently. Lord Jesus, may I serve you and you alone. May I be found only in you, O God. May I follow only you. And Lord, you are the desire of my heart and the joy of my life. I hold that now before myself in remembrance of what you have done and as a call to action in my own life. And lastly, having done all these things, we're called to rejoice in his love, give thanks in his grace, and renew our love for the saints. These are done in a spirit of togetherness, brothers and sisters. 
The Lord's table is not a Lone Ranger moment. It isn't. That's why he didn't take the disciples one-on-one and say, listen, I want you to do this when you think about me. Or in your own secret moment, I want you to take the bread and the wine and to break it. No, he did it with the community that was the believers at that moment. And the instruction is that when we gather, we are to engage. And so it's within a posture and in in a, a mentality of our togetherness that the Lord's table finds its robust and enjoyable expression and culmination. We take it in light of the great seal of adoption that we've received as being brought into and placed into the body of Christ. And it's in this that we rejoice and give thanks for the bond and for the strength of community, for friendship and affection that we have with one another, reminding ourselves, listen, that it is together that we await and look for his return. It's together that we wait for his return. Just as the kids have returned, we were so eagerly together awaiting their return, so now we together wait for the Lord's return. 